Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, uh, and I'm joined today by Carolyn Foley, my good friend. Carolyn, how are you? I am doing well, Stuart. I am once again surrounded by cats. How are you doing? <laughs> I am good. I am not surrounded by cats, which is good. Soon we will be. My daughter is, she knows, it's, it's coming. We almost got our cat when I was in Ohio. Um, but, uh, we managed to escape Ohio without a cat or a disease, which is good. Um, but the cats are coming <laughs> soon. So I too will be surrounded by cats. No, but I'm good. Yeah. I'm really excited about, uh, this week's episode. So, so, uh, because we have a guest that we've been thinking about having for a while. If you remember back a few months ago, we spoke with Adam Beckley of Wisconsin Sea Grant, and he came on and talked about, uh, how water levels have been going up and down in the Great Lakes and how we're at, you know, near high water levels and some of the, the drivers behind that. Uh, and that was a really interesting conversation. And so we wanted to follow up on that a little bit, right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, lake levels in the Great Lakes are a huge deal, right? Where um, people's property are being uh, destroyed or, or troubles are flooding and all sorts of different things are going on. And so um, today we have someone who, um, yeah, I'm really pleased is joining us, um, Vidya Balasubramanyam. She's a coastal hazard specialist with uh, PRI. And we're going to talk to her about what some people can do in um, response to some of the changing lake levels. Because, you know, when we talked with Adam, it was, yeah, they're going up and down. I believe the the title of that one was Humans Control Inches or something like that. Um, but the the question of what can people do in response to these changing lake levels is, is something we're going to talk about today. That's right. I'm excited about that. And for those of you playing along at home, PRI is the Prairie Research Institute at uh, the University of Illinois. Let me choose a little themey thing and then we'll get going. Let's do, um, oh, I don't know. How about this one? Our guest this morning is uh, Vidya Bala Subramanyam. She is the Coastal Hazard Specialist with the Prairie Research Institute and the Illinois Coastal Management Program. Vidya, how are you today? Hey, I'm good. Not surrounded by cats, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm very envious. <laughs> but hopefully next year will be my cat year. Oh, is next year your cat year? <laughs> hopefully. I'll... All right, we can right, let's redo this whole podcast. Hold on. So why are you <laughs> waiting till next year? There's no time like the present for getting a cat, right? It's a land Chicago landlord thing. If my landlord is listening to this, hint. <laughs> <laughs> so you could retain a wonderful tenant if you just let her have a cat. Absolutely. Right. So, um, so, so because you mentioned Chicago, Vidya, so, um, Vidya, you, you work with communities around Chicago. Is, is that right? Yes. Uh, uh, Chicago. And then there are communities north of Chicago within the Illinois coastline. So I work with all of those communities. Great. And so when, when we hear in kind of the public, um, news stories and things like that about climate change and effects on oceans and stuff. We hear the term sea level rise a lot. And we know from previous stuff we've talked about on this show and other um, stories in the news, specifically in the Great Lakes, it's it's a bit more complicated because it's not just waters going up. They go up and then we have record highs and then they go down and we have record lows. Um, and so do you know what's happening, particularly in the area that you work in, in, you know, Southern Lake Michigan around Chicago area? Do you know what's happening right now? Are, are the lake levels 
up or down or on their way a particular way? You you guessed it. The lakes fluctuate a lot. Last year, the water levels were at a record high. I will say this year, the lake levels are going down, but they're still higher than they usually are. Uh, I know Adam talked a lot about the meteorological conditions that influence lake levels, but I can say a little bit more about what I'm seeing just in my backyard. I live not too far away from the beaches. Last year, it was pretty much impossible to walk on the lakefront trail and get on a beach because there was no beach. But right now, I am seeing some of the beaches coming back. So it's it's kind of nice. Uh, the beach near my home, Greenwood Street Beach, is, uh, is now back open to the public. So it is exciting that there is some beach available, but it, lake levels are still higher than usual. Also, that's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't realized about that. So as as the lake levels rise, the beaches, they literally disappear. They go underwater. And so they have to close them for like extended periods. Yeah, it's 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 such a multifold issue. And I marvel at that. We think that it's a shoreline protection and a resilience issue. But then it's also a public access issue. We want people to enjoy the lake and have access to the lake. But when the lake levels are so high, there is no beach for people to be able to do that. Uh, and you're right, with sea level rise, we can plan. I used to work out on the East Coast before I moved to Illinois. So we we have data to plan for the future. We know when the beaches will likely disappear. But with the Great Lakes, it's it's kind of like a game of uncertainty. One year, there will be no beach. And then the next, uh, like 10 years down the line, you'll have a huge, huge stretch of beach. And there are issues with both cases. So can we talk a little bit about the issues with both cases that, that you mentioned there? I mean, so we talked a little bit about if the beach isn't there, people can't access the lake, they can't enjoy it. Um, can we talk a little bit about what happens, you know, to the people who want to enjoy the beach or um, come to the shorelines when we had the record lows? So you have like a huge beach or things like that. Can you talk just a little bit about that, please? Uh, this, when there were record lows, that predates my time at the, uh, at the coastal program and working in the Great Lakes. So I, I can only recite from what I've heard from other people and their experiences. So when the lakes were really low, I know that it posed a pretty significant navigation issue because uh, the harbors were clogged, the ships weren't able to come in. Uh, there were water quality issues with regards to the hydrology of the water supply systems and the direction that they would flow. But um, I, 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 I don't quite remember. Uh, I mean, I wasn't around when they were low, so it's it's hard for me to talk about the beach access portion. That's fair. So, so do people come to you with like questions about changing levels, or like what are what are the kinds of uh, you know? Um, what, what kinds of people do you work with or talk to about that? And what kinds of issues do y'all work on or questions do y'all talk about? Uh, I mostly work with municipal planners and uh, pub people who work in public works. So a lot of local government agencies and their representatives and community planners, park district uh, people who work in park districts, they, ha they have a lot of questions. They usually ask about about the forecast for lake levels, right? Because every uh, being planners, it, it would be nice for them to be able to plan. But uh, obviously, that because of the many variables involved, that is a difficult question to answer. Um, and then they are 
they ask a lot about ways to protect their shoreline. Everyone knows that nature-based solutions are the ideal solution in theory, but in practice, the field is still evolving in Illinois and people are still trying to understand what it looks like to have a living shoreline on their, uh, to protect their shore. And then I think right now there's a lot of interest in financing just because these types of projects cost a lot of money and there just isn't enough money available to really fund comprehensive strategies for shoreline protection. So there's a lot of interest in learning about public-private partnerships and really innovative financing options. So can we go back just for a second, Vidya, um, to living shorelines. Can you give an example of like what a living shoreline in the Chicago area would be? Would it be dunes or wetlands or um, do you have a sense of that? I like to think about living shorelines as a spectrum. So any type of shoreline that has some sort of a habitat component and that tries to mimic existing coastal processes are what I consider a living shoreline for uh, for Illinois and for the Great Lakes. And it's actually pretty exciting because we are constructing what I consider a living shoreline off of Illinois Beach State Park as we speak. So right now there's a floating barge out there and we're putting in a series of offshore rubble ridges. And uh, these ridges are designed to attenuate the wave energy, reduce the force of waves hitting the shoreline. Sorry if I use jargon. And uh, they're intended to slow the southward drift of sand, but not stop it. So the design is super exciting because it is because the design is is meant to work with existing coastal processes and not interrupt them. And then the other exciting part of these ridges is that they're intended to create habitat for fish species. Uh, and so uh, it, it's a it, it is meant to be uh, a uh, it is meant to enhance the the habitat of the lake bed. It's also supposed to be pretty cost effective, so we're excited to uh, transfer this approach to other parts of our shoreline if it's proven to be successful once we once we're done monitoring it. So how that's interesting, cost effective? How like how so? Is it because it's going to save money in the long run, or is it just this is a relatively inexpensive solution to a problem that we need to, you know, throw money toward essentially. I think a little bit of both the long run part. And then these, uh, these stones are pretty inexpensive. So um, hopefully if it requires minimal maintenance, then it will end up being a long-term solution, but that requires a lot of research and monitoring for us to really establish that it is cost-effective in the long term. And so um, that's, that's really, I agree that that's really exciting. I didn't know that you were doing that. So I'm pretty psyched um, that that I probably should have known, um, but I will admit that I did not. When you talk about like time to, to see if it's effective, 
Do you know what time frame you're talking about? Is it like two years, five years, 10 years, all of the above? That's a great question. And uh, because this is a pilot project, so much of this is us figuring it out as we go. There is no real playbook that explains this is how it's supposed to work and this is how long you monitor. Luckily, we have a partnership with the Illinois State Geological Survey and we have, and they've been doing, They've been trying and testing monitoring approaches for the past several years. And so I think we will monitor as long uh, for as long as we we think it's necessary as long as for as long as the geosurvey scientists think it is necessary. Typically, people monitor for five years. But for us, it's more about is this project really accomplishing its goals? And our goal is to protect the precious Pani habitat that is onshore. So I for me personally, I feel like the project will be successful if we are able to protect the Pani over the next two, three years. And um, and then hopefully by that time, the beach in front of the Pani will build back and then there will be this additional layer of protection. Right, because this is supposed to cut down on the erosion is the idea, right? Um, from the wave action and, and things like that. Huh. Yeah. What are some, so living shorelines are one idea, right? And then getting away from this command and control of nature, essentially, right? It's interesting that lately, uh, you know, over the last, I don't know, several decades, I think we started to move away from controlling nature to, to harnessing the power of nature. <laughs> I don't know what the right, I'm not an engineer, um, but we're sort of moved away from that. Living shorelines is one approach. Are there other sort of uh, solutions for uh, the groups you work with that they're looking at to help, um, you know, combat the lake level changes? Combat, uh, after I just said no command and control, to help adapt to or mitigate or become resilient to lake level changes, I suppose? Yeah, uh, I think one thing that I like to think a lot about is this idea of multiple lines of defense. And so it's really about exploring all the different options in the toolkit and using them in conjunction with each other. So uh, I talked about an offshore strategy by mentioning that offshore reef. But that is only truly successful if you also incorporate onshore stabilization approaches. So, for example, beach nourishment or uh, protecting and enhancing the wetlands uh, or the dune habitats that are onshore. And then it's also important simultaneously to think about what's going on upland. So if there's a parking lot behind your beach, then it's important to think about stormwater management at that parking lot. Can you put in some bioswales or rain gardens to reduce the runoff that's uh, that's reaching the shoreline? And so uh, and sometimes it might be that um, it's it's absolutely necessary to build a revetment or a riprap just because our Great Lakes coast in Illinois is uh, has such high wave energy that sometimes hard solutions are inevitable. But when you are constructing these hard solutions, can you incorporate habitat features in the design? Can you incorporate parkland as buffers so that even if these hard structures are overtopped, there are parks? and and a lot of um a lot of native plant species to absorb the force of uh, of the flooding 
So I really like thinking about this holistic approach, multiple lines of defense. And then uh, our program is working a lot on regional collaboration around shoreline management. And so this is about if someone's putting in a structure updrift, can we coordinate to make sure that this updrift structure, uh, that this structure does not cause negative impacts downdrift of the shoreline? So how can we uh, make sure that communities are working together and in conjunction with each other as they plan what projects they put in. That's really cool. So, I mean, as you're describing this video, I'm sort of imagining, because I I don't know that I've ever really thought about them together. I have thought about when there's runoff going into the lake, and I have thought about when there are waves running up against shore, but that, you know, we see all these crazy images of like, you know, a road that is now gone kind of thing. But yeah, that, you know, with the impacts, we've had a ton of rain in the past week or so, right? Like these kind of downpours of rain. And so you could totally understand that um, the, the energy from that, plus the energy with the waves, when you've got the Long Lake Michigan fetch, that's like, you know, it, that's, yeah, that's really cool. Is it challenging to, um, to to work collaboratively or do you find that the communities want to work with you and, and try to um, work collectively to help everybody out? I think there's a lot of interest in working together and working collaboratively. And one evidence of that interest is the fact that we have an Illinois shoreline management working group. And the whole purpose of that working group is for communities to coordinate with each other. And we we meet approximately twice a year. And uh, there's just a lot of interest from them uh, in uh, experimenting with pilot projects, um, uh, experimenting with with innovative approaches to uh, managing our shoreline. So yeah, this one-two approach and this collaborations, you know, that's actually been a real story. Uh, there, there are a few sort of stories about Teach Me, the, that I've learned to Teach Me about the Great Lakes. One is, of course, keep funding scientists, especially social scientists. Uh, two is the importance of like government research and data and things like that. But three is the importance of this collaboration. And so it's interesting to hear you tell that collaboration story. Um, what do you think, uh, makes like, why are these collaborations effective? Like we, you know, I'd like to think about the collaborative process and then we'll move on. Um, but I like to think about the collaborative process. What is it that makes a successful sort of regional collaboration around lake levels? Do you think? A lot of this, what makes this a success is ironically, a willingness to accept failures and a willingness to tackle challenges together. Because like I said, there is no playbook for all of these. These challenges are new. With climate change, these challenges are unanticipated. There's no real playbook. And so I really appreciate that so many of the communities that I work with are willing to handle setbacks and take it in their stride and work with us to to uh, pretty much do this ad- adaptive management. So if something's not working out, figuring out an alternative and being really willing to experiment and open-minded to new ideas and new approaches. A willingness to accept failure. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So that's what makes collaboration a success, ironically. <laughs> so, so uh, if people are listening to this, or they've gone back and listened to the Adam Beckley episode because they're teaching me about the Great Lakes super fans, which I can't blame them for, uh, and they they want to know, uh, and they become concerned about uh, changing water levels, you know, high water levels, low water levels, what have you. What is like one thing that you would share with anyone who's concerned about um, how the changing water levels might be affecting shorelines? Honestly, there's a lot of things that that I'd like to share, but... Well, if you have several, we can even do like a drum roll and a countdown if you have like a top three things. <laughs> this is one of my favorite sticks. Adaptation pathways. So I recently took a training last week about... Um, about and I got, and got introduced to this idea called adaptation pathways. Uh, so what really excited me about the idea of adaptation pathways is that you think about what is your long-term vision for your stretch of shoreline? Where do you want to be in 50 years or 30 years or whatever your horizon is? And then you really work towards that long-term solution. But then Long-term solutions are expensive. They require a lot of uh, thinking, a lot of really careful planning. So then uh, Adaptation Pathways encourages you to think about midterm solutions and short-term solutions, and then sort of piece them together almost like different parts of a jigsaw puzzle so that you work on your emergency needs while also keeping in mind your long-term vision. So you pick an emergency strategy that doesn't impair where you want to be in the long-term. And then simultaneously, you work towards what you want to do in the midterm. So that's what I really love about adaptation pathways. But there's also the fact that adaptation pathways can sometimes not just be a straight pathway. It could also be a maze. And so being willing to work within that framework and being willing to navigate that maze is uh, is something that I've learned. And so <laughs> this is my long way of saying that people shouldn't feel like they're alone. There's a lot of resources that's available through great organizations like Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, uh, through the Illinois Coastal Management Program, and, and so to, to really leverage the resources and the thinking that's going on um, uh, amongst all our Great Lakes uh, stakeholders and, and scientists. Yay, shout out. Yay. <laughs> I love a good shout out. I'm reminded there's a story uh, by Jorge Luis Borges called the um, uh, the Garden of Forking Paths, and that that adaptation pathways reminds me of that. Well, do you have a second thing you want to share? We can do the stick again, or if not, we can, sure. we can move on. All right, hold on. All right, so I'm going to do the drum roll. Then you'll say the thing. Then I'll do the symbol. It's good. The listeners out there they are loving this high quality content. So here we go. So this. Second thing is that uh, it's about, it's the fact that change is inevitable. We can either choose to ignore change or we can intentionally accept and welcome the change within our midst. And then we can also make the choice about what to preserve and what to change. And a lot of this thinking is directed by a scholar who uh, whose work I really respect. Her name is A.R. Siders, and she does a lot of work on managed retreat. And she talks a lot about how 
you know, uh, managed retreat is not really about defeat. It's this golden opportunity to really think creatively about where we want to be in the future. Uh, use this as a as a chance to examine uh, past injustices and think about how we can oh, how we can really strategically remedy those injustices and and come up with an equitable future for ourselves. And so I'm really excited about this idea of welcoming change and being really intentional about how we'd like to handle change. Uh, so this is exciting and uh, it opens up so many avenues for creativity and uh, remedying inequities. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that pans out. That's really interesting. That That's an optimistic. I love how positive that was. I agree. It's so positive because, well, that's just my point. It's like, because we're doing a lot of thinking, you know, across the secret network on, on sea level rise and, and climate related uh, migration, essentially. And we spend a lot of time talking about how that can um, uh, exacerbate inequities, I think, because, you know, those who have the resources will be able to, to do, uh, to, to migrate or retreat or whatever. But, but the point that you're making um, is, is fascinating is that, well, it's also a chance to, to you know, do the old quantum leap thing and, and right old wrongs, right? So that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I never thought about it that way, too. So I encourage people to read uh, the work of this scholar because uh, I learned a lot about how manage retreat. A lot of people just think it's about picking up your house and moving back. But actually, there are infinite possibilities. You can be as creative as the communities that live along the shore. Uh, you, you can be as creative as the number of communities that live along the shoreline can look totally different for different stretches of the shoreline. But it will only work if equity is, 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 the, is front and center of that approach and if the communities who are impacted are the ones who are defining what managed retreat looks like for them it's uh that is the only way that this will be equitable and effective well video this is a fascinating conversation but that's actually not why we invited you here on teach me about the great lakes <laughs> this week the reason we invite you here on teach me about the great lakes ask you two questions the first of which is this if you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch which would you choose <laughs> uh, probably the sandwich just because uh, I like spicy food and donuts are not spicy whereas with sandwiches I have the opportunity to put in a lot of spicy sauces and uh, just a ton of spicy stuff <laughs> and I just enjoy <laughs> that a lot more never a truer statement has ever been said on this show than donuts are not spicy um, so <laughs> well now that feels like a challenge though someone's gonna reach out and be like there is some ridiculous ghost pepper chili donut that oh my um, gosh no no <laughs> let's hope not <laughs> i say this but i don't know if this is too mi tmi but spicy food makes me really really sick so uh oh, no. <laughs> I uh this is definitely self-destructive. <laughs> you're riding the dragon there really, aren't you? That's good. Um, so when I'm in Chicago, so you're in uh Chi-Town, the second city, the windy city, Chicago. When I'm there, where can I go to get a really good sandwich? I don't know. I like I like kind of the over the top sandwiches where you can just do a lot of customization. And ironically, I just I love Subway. <laughs> 
<laughs> just because it lets me do that customization and just go wild. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's true. I mean, uh, have it your way. It's not, it's not Burger King. But you can have it your way at Subway as well. But up, 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 I'm loving it. That's good. Uh, so you are a coastal hazard specialist, right? Uh, what is it that makes you good at that job? Like, what are some key skills for your type of work? Yeah, I think uh, you you and Carolyn will appreciate will probably relate to this, but our our work uh, requires a lot of that interdisciplinary thinking. I find that I have to wear a lot of different hats at the same time like the hat of somebody who's an expert at policy, the hat of a coastal engineer, the hat of a designer, the hat of a planner, and then kind of think across these different, uh, across these different roles and find a way to incorporate the best of all of these disciplines to really, um, to really accomplish our goals. I'm not going to, I'm not necessarily saying I'm good at that. I am saying that that is a key skill. Uh, I do think something that I bring to the table is this uh, mindset that's accepting of change, being really flexible, being really creative. And then I also like to think that I that uh, I like to challenge the status quo. So asking why we've been doing this a certain way and what it could look like to really liberate ourselves from those structures and what it could look like to try out something new, try out something innovative that uh, challenges the status quo. That is perfect. Uh, where can people go to find out more? So you've done a lot of interesting work and, and you do a lot of good work with the Prairie Research Institute or PRI, as Carolyn calls it, um, and the Illinois Coastal Management Program. Where can people go to find out more about you and the work that you're doing? I think you can go to the Prairie Research Institute Coastal Management Program website and you can literally Google that and you will find it. Uh, there's also the Illinois State Geosurvey website where they post a lot of information about their research. Uh, PRI also has some great social media. So I encourage you to dive into the websites and check out all the great resources offered. And then you can also follow me on Twitter, although I don't speak on behalf of my organization. I do like to share content about Great Lakes Research. So I'm at VB123 on Twitter. VB123. Even I can remember that one. I can't remember the yes. show stuff, but I'll remember that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. And we'll put links to all of that in the show notes, which you, listener, can find right now at teachmeaboutthereadlakes.com slash 36, because this is episode 36. Or if you're on your phone, chances are you are. Uh, stop driving, pull over, and uh, you can scan the show notes in your podcast app. Well, uh, Vidya Bala Subramanyam, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Boy, I love that optimistic take on retreat. I hadn't thought about that before, and uh, I'm really jazzed about it. Yeah, um, I really, really enjoy any time I get to talk to Vidya. And that's part of why, because she brings different perspectives that rejuvenate you and stuff like that. So it's great. 
Yeah, I do. I feel extra, extra rejuvenation, rejuvenation even. Although maybe we need to get rid of the term retreat, right? Because that sounds passive. So maybe, we, you know, managed is active. Retreat is like a passive. We need to come up with a new word. Uh, so listeners, if you have a new word, a new term for managed retreat, send it to us at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or call us on the hotline and uh, we, will, we will do that. But uh, what's a new optimistic active take on managed retreat? We'd love to hear that. And with all the power that we have, we will... Insert that into society. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Carolyn, is there anything you learned today? Yeah, I mean, I learned that they're um, they're installing ridges offshore of Illinois State Beach, and actually, um, so in my background as helping with fish stuff, sometimes um, I uh, I'm excited for the potential for additional fish habitat too, because that part of the lake is. Um, typically fairly important uh, nursery habitat for some of like yellow perch and stuff like that. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's really exciting. Um, and I'm going to go look for pictures of it. <laughs> and I wish that I could just drive over there and watch them. Um, yeah. If you find any, we'll put them in the, in the show notes, if there are any that are on there. No, that's really true. I hadn't thought about that. So I did some work when I was at Texas Sea Grant a few years ago. Um, the Nature Conservancy contracted with us. They they uh, they restored an oyster reef in Matagorda Bay, Texas, Half Moon Reef, it's called. And so we did a survey of anglers down there, and it turns out the anglers really liked it. It uh, because it became important fish habitat, and people go and fish at it, right? And right. Uh, we found that it, you know, it wasn't like the best fish habitat in all of Matagorda Bay, but it was like another really solid fishing spot, and and people liked that. And so the chance to get kind of these multiple satisfactions that's that's really awesome. Yeah. How about you? Um, yeah, I learned all the stuff we talked about. I learned that it, it, it's okay to be positive. We need to work on our language. I learned that they're installing that. Um, and I learned that, yeah, I really want to go check out this ciders work, uh, and, and read all about that. Um, that will be exciting to me. Uh, cool. Well, announcements time. It's time for announcements. Carolyn, do we have any announcements? Um, no. Oh, wait, I just said we're not going to do the announcements. Son of a... Uh, no, no announcements. We're doing a book club, people, but the book hasn't even come in yet uh, for me, so I haven't started to read the book. I'll tell you what, though, while I'm waiting for it, there was a really interesting piece in the New York Times yesterday on climate change in Chicago, very relevant to this discussion, that was uh, written with Dan Egan, the author of uh, Life, uh, Death and Life of the Great Lakes. So uh, go check that out in the New York Times. We'll link that in the show notes. Uh, great. Well, then I guess I will jump straight to the end credits. First, let me put the music bed down there. Let me hit the right button. It is right here. Teach me about the Great Lakes is brought to you the fine. Teach me about the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois, Indiana, Sea Grant, and also me. Uh, we encourage you to check out the great work we do at iicgrant.org and at ilincgrant on Facebook, Twitter, other social media. We're starting to boost our Instagram. Uh, so check that out. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, the inimitable Hope Charters. Carolyn Foley, also inimitable. Megan Gunn, inimitable. Reedy Miles, inimitable. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and our fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and I encourage you to check out her work at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISQ. You can also find the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. Uh, thanks for listening, and of course, keep rating those lakes. And visiting those lakes.